This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another wonderful episode, continuing in our Israel podcast series and starting to round up our business series and in particular our Women in Business series. This week, a bit of a special episode for me because not only am I interviewing a fascinating woman in business, but she also is a longtime colleague of mine. Debbie Kodesh is Executive Vice President of Mayor, which is my primary occupation, working with college students on campus. And Debbie works in the national office where she has overseen development and a host of other activities over the last number of years, almost a decade uh, in some capacity and four or five years full-time. And in addition, she brings a really fascinating personal and professional background uh, from the world of finance and banking to that role and to our audience in this week's edition. I got to meet with Debbie in person again while I was in Israel in the summer. And fortuitously, we're coming up right to her episode when it was slated to be, and it happens to be that on the very day it's coming out, I'm also spending the day at a conference with her and other colleagues. So once again, a subtle hand of providence expressing itself here on Jews You Should Know. Once again, thank you for those who have been rating and commenting on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and other platforms. Please continue to do so and to spread the word to friends and acquaintances far and wide so we can continue growing our wonderful show. And now to the Jerusalem Hills for my conversation with Debbie Kodesh. We are here with Debbie Kodesh, currently the Executive Vice President of Moor. Now this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of interview for me since um, kind of inside baseball, I actually, my main day job is I work for Moor. Um, and so, uh, Debbie is someone I've worked with for quite a few years, and we're going to talk about Moor as well, but I really want to get a, a bigger picture of her whole journey at large. Uh, she's been very active in the financial world for quite a few years, um, investment banking in Israel, and dealing with startups and, and many things, and that's why I wanted to include her in this Women in Entrepreneurship and Business mini-series during my time here in Israel. So, Debbie, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Nice to be here with you under these circumstances. Thank you for joining. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you grew up, where you grew up, and so forth. Okay. So I grew up in uh, outside Philadelphia, and um, I came to Israel when I was about 25 years old. And uh, where do you want me to start? Go back a little. Go to the big potatoes from the top. Yeah. Right from the top. What hospital were you born? Oh, no, <laughs> I uh, I went to GW. I'll start there. I'm an accounting major. Practiced accounting in uh, as a CPA in Philadelphia for about five years, four or five years, before I uh, made Aliyah. I came to Israel for what was supposed to be a year. Uh, I was very enamored by the financial world and wanted to an international business. And my idea was to come to Israel and uh, and learn the language. I was sparked by uh, a, a strong desire to want to learn Hebrew. And um, it's, which started at a very young age when I first came to Israel when I was 15, and uh, um, 
that's a whole other story in itself. But yes, tell us tell us the story. What was your Jewish background like? Did you grow up with a traditional home, or was it more? So we grew up a traditional conservative uh, Judaism, and uh, we were we were pretty active in going to shul and uh, and being involved in the community. And what town was this? It was called Lafayette Hill. Lafayette Hill. Okay. We went to a synagogue in Norristown, Pennsylvania. For anybody out there that knows Norristown. The synagogue moved to Bluebell, um, and uh, I was very involved and very active in USY, and as part of USY, I went to Israel when I was 15. That's and on pilgrimage? Pilgrimage. Yeah. USY pilgrimage, 84. Nice. Yeah, that was a long time ago. As a four-year-old. And, yeah. uh, as, well, as a four-year-old, yes, I don't look that. <laughs> um, and, the, and, the, and the fun story for me there was when I was uh, uh, coming across, we had spent some time in a Bedouin community, and there was this young... Bedouin uh, child and came up to me and in, in speaking fluent English to me and asking me, you know, if we started, started actually started to speak Hebrew to me, not English, started to speak Hebrew to me. And I looked at them like they were crazy because I didn't really know anything other than Shema Yisrael or anything else or Baruch. I didn't know anything back then. So I told her, I can't speak to you. Do you speak English? And she switched to perfect English. Uh, and then she asked me the question that um, if you're Jewish, why is it that you don't speak Hebrew? And I really couldn't answer it, and she kind of knocked me off my you know, feet, and I said, she's right, why don't I speak Hebrew if I'm Jewish? Despite the fact that we live in America, and I'm American as well, but um, I was kind of said to her, that's it. You know, After I walked away from that experience, I said, somehow, somewhere, I'm gonna learn Hebrew. Didn't mean I was necessarily making Aliyah, but it meant I had to learn Hebrew, and I started taking classes and trying to learn more, which led me back to wanting to come to Israel when I was uh, on Nativ, and my parents, we're not so interested in me coming on Nazi. They didn't want me to break up my uh, my college. And that was a year career. before you went That's to GW? Real, no, it was supposed to be. I didn't go. Okay. Uh, my parents were not so happy about it. They had preferred that I try and wait till after college and uh, go. Okay. Um, now they regret that because since I'm living in Israel for 24 years, I think they thought maybe <laughs> <laughs> if I had gone that year before, maybe I wouldn't have you been got out. It, got it out of your system. Um, I got it out of my system, <laughs> but I didn't get it out of my system. So when I was 25, the first and foremost was to come learn Hebrew. Uh, and then I came on a program called Wujus. I don't think it actually exists anymore. World Union World Jewish. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. It's around. That program was six. It's an incredible program. I'm sorry it's not existing. But it was six months in Arad where wow. we, where we uh, learned Hebrew, Jewish studies. We had um, a very traditional, it was Shabbos and Kashrut and everything there. Plus the classes were various levels of rabbis and other people in, in, from Israel. And we learned a lot of Hebrew. And then after that, we work in, in your field. They help place you where you find your own job. And, and I went to work for Bank Leo May. Oh, okay. Actually where? In Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv, Adam wow. Street. Wow. And um, my original job, the, actually to backtrack, was that I was, um, to how I actually got that job, which was quite interesting, was that I was practicing public accounting in Philadelphia. And I, wa- and I was standing like by the receptionist desk and the... Uh, mail comes and there's a letter from an accounting firm in, uh, in Tel Aviv and I went into the head partner's office and I said, who do you know here? How did you get this? What is this? I said, I want a job there. He goes, you work for me. I said, just for a year, just for one year. I want to go for a year. Let me get a job from them. And he called on the spot for me in his office at that mm-hmm. moment um, to Tel Aviv and told him about me and I had been working for him for four years and so I was very close with this partner and uh, he said, okay, we'll take her, but we have to meet her first, we can't just give her a job. 
So I said, that's when I ended up backtracking and saying, I don't want to go without the job. What if I get there and I meet him and he doesn't want me to have a job? Right. I was too, I'm, I'm a CPA, so I was too nervous hey, to not have the job, too conservative. <laughs> so that's when I found the program, Woodges. Uh, so when I went to meet him three weeks after I got here, he told me the salary and I said, I don't want to be an accountant for that salary. Can you send me to an investment job? And he sent me as the accountant for Bank Naomi. Their firm was the largest firm in Tel Aviv, and he was the accountant. They, they were the main firm for Bank Lumi, and he said, I'll send you to Bank Lumi for a year. He sent me there. So you went um, there as part of this program, but you kind of had already found your own It was a paid job, but I found job. my own job. Yeah. yeah, they wouldn't have found for me. They were finding people, they were sending people to like museums and Kibbutzim right. and Shirut Lumi kind of positions. Not these kind of high profile um, fields. They weren't yeah. sending people to finance, especially women. Right. Oh, Back sh- then, yeah. talking 1994, there were no women to finance in this country that I could find. Oh my gosh. Very few. Except Galia Muir, who's the president of was the president of Bank Lumi. Wow. Um, so you have so you had already finished college at this point. You were I working, was working for, a for a while. For a while, I was and twenty-five. Then, yeah. Wow, twenty-five. You went to do this program, mm-hmm. which is a big move in the mid, kind of mid career. Yeah. It was a year leave. I just took a leave. So right. I knew I could he go kept back your to my job. job. Yeah. I kept my job. And is for that, six is that job years. still waiting for you? <laughs> for six years, I told them I was coming back a year after the. He probably eventually got the point. You know. Yeah, a little problematic. But yeah, it, they were great. They they kept me going. Um, but Bank Lumi, I spent a year. Uh, I learned that I was an, as an analyst, and I was working in the, what we call here the Khatiba Kesafim, the the financial bank. You know, we did the financial statements of the bank and whatnot. And your Hebrew must have been already quite good at this point. My Hebrew was terrible. Really? Uh, except I was in, at the level of Olive Stein when I came into the country. Wow. That's where they put me. By the time I got to the bank, I was up a level or two, maybe Bet Gimel. Kind that's of still very mediocre. Yeah. When I got to the bank, not a soul spoke a word of English to me for the entire year. Screamed at me for the first three months till I could get myself going. And basically, I got all my Hebrew in that year. Just threw you in the deep end. And I, I lived with an Israeli who spoke Hebrew and French. And I went to work and I went to Opan with all Russians. And so when they didn't know a word, they yelled it out in Russian. And I was like, they would say, da. And I would say, no, da. No, da. I don't understand anything. And by the end of that year, I had such a high level of Hebrew. It was incredible. But today, that wow. doesn't happen because there's so many Americans. But back then, there was nobody here that spoke right. English. And there wasn't an Aliyah wave. There wasn't other people around me. I didn't have very... What was all that like for you socially? So I met my husband, who was oh, okay. <laughs> three weeks after I arrived in the country. Also, he was on this program? No, he no. was already here for three years working in uh, uh, the hotel business. Here. Also as an Ola. As an Ola. From America? From Ohio, yeah. I Akron. think that's part of America. Akron. I think that's part of America. Akron, okay. That's where LeBron James is from, uh, so you know. Yeah, so my stepbrother-in-law was his high school coach. So no way. Get out of here. <laughs> took him off the court. No, the JCC. That's a whole different one. You should interview him on the next Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, maybe I will. Who's, that? Who's his coach? <laughs> Uh, Keith Dambrot. Wow. Yeah. He was a coach where? At the, at the JCC or in his high no, school? No, he was a high school coach, but he pulled him off the JCC court and brought him into his high school. He really? switched him from public school to his private no school. No way. Cat, private Catholic. And he was actually his coach? He was his coach all through high school. No yeah. way. Yeah, well, I certainly do. He's in the movie that. if you want to see the okay, movie. Okay, <laughs> I would say. Maverick Carter and all the guys over there? Now he's at Duquesne. My wow. I guess... Uh, Wow, having LeBron so as a person. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get you a, a I haven't chat. met LeBron, if that means anything. No, I'm not, you know, I don't expect that. Just to meet this guy, it'd be amazing. I haven't got to meet That's incredible. So that's your stepbrother. That's my in-law. Yeah, in-law. Yeah. Got it. So your husband came on Aliyah also just for ideological reasons? What was his? Um, so he came up for the similar backgrounds as me in terms of his conservative upbringing and... He has a whole, he's a great story, but a separate story. And um, and he came on a mission, 1,000, with Philadelphia when they did 1,000 people uh, came to Israel. And he came on that mission and he said, 
you know, lots of things inspired him on that mission. He right. also came on pilgrimage. He also had that similar Strong kind of US -Y conservative stories that yeah. came hit him hit him again a decade later, and um, he made Ali on his wow. own. Wow, and he met here through friends because he. He had been in the hotel business in America and had been in Philly. So friends in Philly had given me his name. Uh, just to know somebody. And I didn't think now you know. Was gonna, now I know. <laughs> 24 years later, 24 four kids later. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> then that's I hope you know. I hope I know. But the, the saving grace for me when you asked me the question was that because I was dating him during that time period, at least I could, you know, end my day and speak. Speak to him in English. English yeah. I was I couldn't wait to speak English to somebody. Right. That's what used to happen to me in my day for about uh, a year and a half. It was very hard for me to find. A way to speak English. And so hard to imagine that given today's, today's climate. You yeah. can't imagine. I, I know it was for my benefit, but I had plenty of tears and during it, those yeah. years because I was like, nobody understands me. I can't even get through, you know. And this is not 50 years ago. We're talking about 20, really 25 years 24 ago. years ago. So to have that kind of environment was, uh, yeah. I mean, it is a double edged sword because, I mean, it's great. Like today, it's great. I appreciate that foundation. I, you know, I never had that intensity again because. When I switched jobs and different things, many things ultimately started to run more in English. Yeah, um, I certainly can work in Hebrew, and business Hebrew is much better. Nonprofit Hebrew, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> business Hebrew is uh, is fairly strong, and that was a big asset. Kesef, tell me Kesef. Those are the important words. That's <laughs> so, so, no. it, so you must have also kind of gotten connected to your husband's, your future husband's. Uh, social circles. Well, he was here already for three years, right. so he must have had a, a crew of friends. And yeah, but his I when I left the uh, the Arad, I moved to Tel Aviv. So I yeah. had because of the job, and so I had built my life in Tel Aviv. It was two years. It, it would be two years from the time we met that. Wow. Um, he was in Jerusalem at that, that point. He would yeah that we would get married. Then he right. was living in Jerusalem, and his social circles were more in Jerusalem. Uh, so it, I didn't get you were still kind of from that until we got engaged, and then ultimately yeah. moved to Jerusalem when we got married, and wow. so. Um, then it was more part of his circles than right. it was. But, but until then, it was I was like a on my own. You know, it was a little little tough. And um, and then I got and then after a year at the bank, which I cried almost every day. No offense to Bank Lumi, but it was just a very challenging place to be in English, an American philosophically and a CPA. And yeah. I was in the accounting and finance group and. After being there for about six months, I realized I was the only CPA in the room. Really? They all get Stop. economic degrees or uh, Bank Lumi College or different things. And so the, the level of that I thought I was in was not what I was in professionally. You, you it took a, me a long time to understand that. Yeah, a stronger financial background, yeah. but I was junior to all of them. But right. I didn't. it wasn't the place that I wanted to grow in. And I uh, stumbled upon an opportunity to join a startup. And um, we were basically there were two Israelis that were opening up a business to work with foreign investors around the world to invest in the Israeli stock market. Um, the problem was there were no foreign investors in the world investing in the Israeli stock well, market. Was in at that time, this was not a trendy thing to do in 1995. Not at all. Nobody was yeah. doing it. No startup nation um, yet. Yeah. Nothing, and they wanted to start to write research and convince them, and then it would come. And I said, I have, you know, okay, I'll jump in. Um, which was a crazy move. And you're I think I even took less salary. <laughs> were you supposed to do research for them, or you were supposed to kind of be a rainmaker and, and, and introduce Say them to no. American investors? Um, I didn't. First of all, I didn't know any really American investors at this time. But my job was both. It started out writing research, and then you know you're, you're with Israelis, and then they're you know they had actually pretty decent English. The the funny thing is on my interview again. You're talking. I'm only here. I think I'm here about a year and a half in the country when I started in '95 with them. Maybe a little less than a year and a half, and um, they started to test my financial Hebrew because they just wanted to know that I could work in both languages. Right. And uh, it, they asked me all these questions about that I had to use those words every day at the bank, 
very interesting. It was like my whole vocabulary is that. Now, if they had asked me anywhere <laughs> about the hardware store, the supermarket, the taxi driver, I don't think I would have known anything right. else because all I knew was financial. But that's Hebrew. what you needed for this job. So. And uh, and they were like so impressed with my level of Hebrew of being here. <laughs> Thank God you didn't go out this outside this realm. And uh, and it turned out to be a nice fit. And and I joined this this really startup. We were yeah. startup, and so. The bottom line from that startup is it grew from four about four or five of us to 120 people wow. in four years. We went public. Really? Um, we took over the largest domestic house and we became public, and that was Nasua. That was that, we that, was is that considered a VC fund? Was that we were what not it was? a VC fund. So we what were, was it exactly? We were an investment bank. You were an investment bank. We were like so, a bank. We were so a bank. An investment bank, not a right, right, no, right. No such thing as like an outside the banking world. Right. But we were an investment bank, and we started out writing research okay. and in the, that business you basically take commission when people trade with you so no one was trading and we were writing and writing and writing and we had one client uh, a firm in London who started to trade with us pretty heavily and they were basically our, almost our only client and they wow. were funding our business for the first year um, and they just they saw something in the emerging Israeli market, market. Uh-huh. And we were writing about the top 10 Israeli companies. And Which, what were some of the big players? So Teva, wrote, or what was back yeah, then? Yeah, so I wrote about Teva. Teva was like a very cheap stock back then. Yeah. They didn't have Copac Zone. It was all very preliminary. And I wrote about all the banks. Really, Bank Kapolim, Bank Lumi. It turned around and <laughs> became a bank, bank Ben Lumi. Um, I covered, we covered stocks like Taddy Run, Supersol, Awesome. And we covered Israel Chemicals. And right. A lot of the big names that we really, you're talking about, I covered five different sectors, Africa, Israel. Wow. So you got real estate, banking, oh you know, God. you got one company per sector you that imagine, you can cover. Yeah. Pretty much a monopoly yeah, here. In America, you imagine you probably have, you have teams of hundreds of people in one sector, you don't have one bank. We were pre, <laughs> I know, I feel like one, basically, bank up, Pauline, um, and bank with me. But, but we were, pre-privatization was happening during that period. Uh, this is Netanyahu's first yeah. term, right? So was, we started this business like 95, 90, they started probably they opened the doors maybe two months before I got there three months not yeah. much um, and in 1996 Morgan Stanley made an announcement that Israel should be two percent of your portfolio wow but there was nobody but us that people could call and our phones started ringing off the hook and really? in that following year I think we did about a half a billion turnover in the market meaning there was nobody else you were just there stuff. we were there yeah and we spoke English and we were hospitable and we were customer service <laughs> customer service so they're calling the bank going well what do you want right. you know I mean if you call bank I mean you were not getting back then that kind of service you were getting like you weren't sure you trusted the person we were on the edge with trading techniques and electronic trading and so we had Whoa. we had invested in that side and we had a great the two founders were the the core guy two guys that really friends that opened this yeah. had a lot more of the chutzpah to do this and then i came in with a lot more chutzpah but they really are the credit right. um one was an entertainment lawyer and a fanatical trader and that's why i think we got the trading side really strong and the other one was like running real estate and pizza chains. And, <laughs> but he was sales and he was just very sharp. He's great. We were, he and I are still quite in touch. And he really was the spearhead. But but we went all over Europe, basically. We didn't touch America. They weren't interested in Interesting. this. We went all through Europe with maps to show them where Israel was, what we looked like, why these companies were like. And I, I actually was quoted a lot, but one of my favorite quotes was, I felt like I was a kid in the candy store looking at the stock market. Everything was so cheap. Uh, Meaning, how do you look at these things and why is it so cheap? But if banks around the world are trading at one times their book value, right. in Israel they were trading at half. What people? What, There's any a tremendous value buys. The values yeah. were like there was. Yeah. You don't have to be the top analyst in the world to figure out that the value on paper was so strong, and people started to make 
so much money in the market. Really? So much money. Foreigners. Foreigners. Yeah. They made a ton. They, all those emerging market funds, they were doing phenomenal in Israel, and they were making Israel more and more part of their Why wasn't Why wasn't America interested at that, especially Morgan Stanley was backing it? Um, America was just always the last to come. The only part of America that we tackled that we found was willing to trade with us was California, was hmm. San Francisco funds. They were on the cutting edge. Silicon, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley. Valley. All the funds that were out there were... Montgomery and you know there was like Dodge and Cox like some of these guys out there were really involved in early trading and right. emerging and weren't afraid and all the Europeans were just right there they didn't it's so interesting because you think of Europe is so anti-Israel these yeah. days our clients were T. Rowe Price, Fleming, Schroeder, Dame, Montgomery these were the big names that were trading with us wow. who else were you know there was nobody else to call in our right. market and then after the first Imagine year the competition started emerging Lehman yeah. came in and UBS and Goldman, Goldman everything. they all came in um, and we had we had very high fees because when you're the only one in the market they have to trade with you right um, so in the, in the following year we had to do double the amount for the same money because right once they came in we had to cut to it's cut the fees and and then clients would say we have uh, look we trade with Lehman around the world right. they I got a trade with yeah. some with them and some with you right. so we they became very hard to keep up the pace which yeah. we did well though I mean I wouldn't say we did you get offers to be just to be bought out by one of these bigger shops uh, we all got off I got a lot of offers to actually join their to shops join the shop but didn't they one Goldman um, just come in and swallow you up or you know just buy you out yeah we weren't really the, I mean again I was uh, more of the minor shareholder than the major right. shareholder so I didn't have uh, I mean we we all we all were actually in those meetings but they really had the choice of what to do and I think we um, I, IBI came in and we merged with some of their business and uh, we had some other banks here that you know kind of discount had a, a baggy piece and we merged their investment group and we did underwriting and ultimately we went on to underwrite all the banks I bond offerings for Teva all kinds of wow. hundreds of millions of dollars and I ended up traveling through Europe with the president of Bank Mizrahi teaching him English to speak to <laughs> investors and it was a really an incredible experience I mean I, I look at my Aliyah and I was like this is like an Aliyah dream yeah. I got myself into like this crazy environment that two things without that Hebrew without that pain of that year and yeah. I say that pain and pangling me probably set me off in a, in a way that nothing else could have because I'm not sure that I could have handled this job without both the Hebrew remember I had to speak right. to Teva and the banks every every week to they get need information to you and, yeah. and then I had to work with the American or the European sorry bring them in and and so after after 98 we we went public and uh um, I had my first child, and I, my journey has gotten your, your more observant. Your child went public. You know. My child and my religious life, uh, you know, enhanced, and I got more observant over the years. And um, so it was not as conducive to be in that environment. Because it's just a high pressure, like it's so many hours. I mean, I traveled every other week, and I was really. Is investment banking in Israel similar to the states with the crazy hours? It is, 90-hour yeah. weeks and stuff it's like that? It's a little crazy. I mean, when we were doing a startup, we were also passionate. There were 14-hour days out of love, meaning I right. loved every minute of it. Right. It was not a job to me. I felt like it was a big blessing to be able to do that. Um, but when you have a child, you're also working than the other. Right. <laughs> Lots of more hours there. How many more? 10 hours. To, so you couldn't. I couldn't really handle all that. I asked them to open up the office in Jerusalem. They didn't want to do that. So I stayed on as an advisor. I stayed on through the IPOs, and I stayed on for a little while, and as an advisor back to the firm. Um, and then I decided to take a year off and uh, take my sort of, I didn't really, still had my shares, I just took off for a while right. to uh, go to seminary. 
Wow. I went to seminary for a year, took my kind Where'd of you go? sabbatical. I went to Madrash Rachel. Oh, wow, amazing. And, and then you're, they you're called in your 30s me. already at this point, I would imagine, right? I you're was 29. 29, okay. I mean, they, all this happened like yeah. <laughs> very young life there. Incredible. Um, and then when I, uh, at the end of my year at Madrash Rachel, I got a phone call from the group and they had asked, uh, they were trying to raise money for what was new at the time, this is 99. <laughs> Uh, was a venture fund, right. and could I help them raise money for a venture fund? And I said, you know, we don't. We we actually had a venture fund, which was agricultural fund in our group. We had done, but it was very small, and it, we we inherited it from a merger we did. So we weren't really involved in that space, and it wasn't as it happening right. yet. This is even like pre the dot com boom. Yeah, or like right around that time. Yeah. yeah, pre pre. I mean, I know when Patango came into our office, you know, with their first fund, and they talked to our team about helping them back in 96, 97. We didn't really know what they were actually doing. It was like very early. I certainly didn't understand that space. Um, So they came to me and they said, we just can't do it. Why don't you do it? Um, We'll partner with you. You do it on your own. And they did. And I didn't have a company set up. I didn't have, I was still kind of on sabbatical. So uh, that company was Formula Ventures. And um, they had had somebody trying to raise money for the last year, they had tried to raise a lot of money, and all, and they had a lot of money in, and they just needed like a small amount of money, which was twenty million dollars. Uh, nothing. So small. Yeah. Not yeah. So, small. so basically, it. I took the whole summer off, and I raised money for them, and we closed twenty, wow. more than twenty. You went million. to the states, or where did you go at that point? Back to Europe. Um, we went to Europe. Yeah, just to Europe, Back to Europe and yeah. we raised money from a very large group in Europe after calling you know, a lot of people, and it was very successful. And I think uh, you know I had made enough to take another year off if I wanted wow. to. And I said, this is the easiest business in the world. This is the business I'm going to do. Right. But then uh, 2000 hit, and it was never Crash. that easy again. Right. <laughs> and uh, it was not it was not so simple. That was beginner's luck, in right. my opinion, from that aspect. But I got known to raise money. I got known in the market here to raise money for funds, and I went on to raise money for many, many funds in the market, dozens, right. throughout the 2000s and 2000 up to 2007, 2008, when I started to shift into uh, companies. So when you uh, first of all, what was it like throughout this whole time, and was there an evolution? Did you see an evolution in terms of the way that women were perceived in the financial world? Was it so when you started, it was like nobody, right? It was still nobody. And then, and then did then that change? Or was it difficult? It was incredibly difficult. I would be at a conference here in, in Tel Aviv. There would be four women in the room, and I had a hat on. I was observant, right. but not really. Right, right, right. I mean, not covering my hair with anything. Your audience, right? right. <laughs> no, wig. no wig, no wig, um, yeah. but I had a hat on, and I was it was like I stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, it there was definitely a lot of discrimination in the market. Um, you know, when we don't have to go into the Me Too, we've had right. plenty of uh, scenarios that were not as uncomfortable. I don't want to say anything happened like that, but it's certainly like watching it in the market, watching the behavior. And if I saw a behavior, I just walked out the I would right. never go back. I wouldn't work with those people. I wouldn't uh, be associated with them, and I wouldn't go back into their offices. And there are many major firms that wow. have a lot of high respect here who I would never walk into their offices because some of the partners were very um, right. disrespectful in many ways right. to women. And again, it's more verbally, you know, more verbal kind of comments that are inappropriate. But innuendo and things like innuendo that. Innuendo and things and that you, you know, whatever. Did, so it was a very Did you find different. them not respecting your financial or professional knowledge? No, I felt that I, I gained a lot of not, I got I gained a lot of respect in that world. I don't feel that for me, it wasn't more about me. It was when I would bring entrepreneurs in or other people that were women. Uh, did they have a lot more issues? I think I garnered a lot of respect and I don't feel that I had, I felt like I got... I feel like I got a fortunate break by doing what I did here. I don't think, you know, my whole goal when I started all this was to do something for Israel. When I came in the very, very beginning, it was to 
do international business where I could go back and help Israel from America. Uh, but I ended up staying, so then my issue was, well, how do I bring in more money? Bring money how do to I the do country, it? yeah. So my whole goal was to bring money to the country. I was never a goal to be an investment banker. I just wanted to understand investments in a greater respect, and I felt like this would be a great year to do that if I was still going to go back and be an accountant. For all I knew, I was going to still take that, go back to that <laughs> position I left. Um, but it was to have that... Um, that ability to do that, I don't think I could have done investment banking in America. And I got offers to go to London, right. a lot of offers, very, very high offers to go to London. Um, you know, unlike what I've seen in, as a family here with my husband, right, we made a decision that I didn't want to leave Israel. I didn't come here to move to back to another country. Right. Certainly not London. And they right. even told me, come for a year and then you'll go. I was not interested. Famous in last words. <laughs> I said, I didn't really want to go to London for a year. Um, it was a shame, you know, and, and it wasn't a shame. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled I didn't. I have many of my colleagues that I ended up building up in the business today. I trained somebody, he's the top analyst at Merrill Lynch, and this one's the top analyst in Lehman, and at the time when it was Lehman, they left, right. obviously. Um, but most of my team went all over. They, When we went public, they disbanded, and, and they poached a lot of people from my firm, which I was very unhappy with, which is why I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to be poached either. I, I felt like I was part of this founding group. I, right. made, I was very loyal to the team, and very important for me not to, wasn't money, the, the whole job was never about money for me. Right. Never. And I didn't care, and I, I, I cared about making sure we could make execute and bring more money in the country and grow businesses and create more jobs. That's all I cared about. If I was doing that, I would be fulfilled with whatever came out of it. And so, for good or for bad, as being a banker, you know, when you don't have, when you're not swayed by the client or the money, hopefully you put on a much more ethical business of what you're really trying mm. to do. And I feel like that's been what my mission has been throughout all my years of ever doing investment banking. Right. Was to work with people, good people, doing great things, making you know, great businesses and jobs and creation. And I look around to the companies and the jobs and the people that have benefited from it. And that's, what's, that's what makes yeah. me smile every day. You know, it's not what's in my, you know. Right. So what happened in 07, 08? You were kind of tiring of the VC world? Um, what did you want yeah, to do? Yeah, well, there's a couple things that happened in this country, which is part of the, maybe part of some disrespect and some whatever. But um a lot of what I was doing was raising money for first-time funds. If anybody knows the fund business, that's the hardest time to raise money is for a first-time fund. And I had an expertise. No track record. No track record. Yeah. You know, the people that came into the fund business were all, the, why was it such a market that I was able to get into to begin with? It's because all the public companies I was covering, when you're a CEO of a public company and you want to leave that position, where do you go? You open up a VC firm. Right. That's sort of what they all did to invest in that field. Because they take their they take their earnings, earnings and, they and their put knowledge. It to, yeah. No, they take their knowledge of that industry and they'll, they'll mm. do a technology, you know, if they came from the formula, the technology company, they opened a fund and they were working on the fund. Um, you know, many of the guys, that's where they came out of, was working in the public markets. Um, or you could find Air Force, you can find people like that that have done specialties in aircraft and this and things like that. They have but, a specialized um, knowledge. They have a real specialized knowledge. And I was very valuable to them as first-time funds. Once you have a first-time fund, then you have a second fund, right. then, and you're good. You don't need fund people to raise your money for you. You have they, your donor, you have your people already. You have your investors. people already, yeah. you have your investors, yeah. so I don't really need you. And they would call me towards the end when they couldn't get to that next goal. Mm -hmm. They had a $50 million fund and they wanted to go 100 so maybe they could get themselves to 75, they couldn't get the end of the way. So they would certainly call me to come back for that 75. And I didn't mind that they were in I said to them, although I had benefit from my investors if they came back in, and I got smarter over the years in terms of how I structured Structure, it. Yeah. Smart enough, never know. But, and, and so 
that business and I was also seeing it, investors were getting a little tired until they could really see returns. And we weren't seeing returns. I, mean, uh, I still have funds. The markets were flat at that from time? From that time period that they're still with companies that they haven't exited. That's, right. This is going Because this, 15, is this during 20. the crash? Is this when the recession was hitting? Well, they, the recession really hit in 2001, 2000, 2001. So right. we, I had the couple, first couple funds in the early, you know, 99, right. 2000. Um, well, wasn't there was sort of a second major recession with the real estate bubble in 08 and everything? Yeah, so that also caused a lot of uh, uh, a lot of downfalls, a lot of tension, and that I saw the picture there, which was very difficult. I tried a couple partnerships because once I came back into full force, I wanted it to go with partnerships, but I was so specialized in what I did, and I was uh, all those years in the 2000s, I was raising my four kids, and. Um, I had my own business. I had a couple of people that worked for me, and I could take five deals a year, three deals a year. I could take enough deals. This is the fundraising business. Yeah, yeah, raising money for the fund. So if I raised for three funds, and I could, it was enough to cover the year. Then I could be right. with my kids. Right. So I built an incredibly, I felt dynamic lifestyle for me, and the ability to support the family and to do it nicely. And I wasn't again motivated by making more and more. Right. I was making enough that was good for us. So that's the way we built the business for the first couple of years while the kids were little. In 2007, I started to realize, and I had my last child in 2007, so I took a little bit of another break and decided to think about what direction to go. But all that time when the markets got bad, I did go to companies and help with financial strategy as a CPA, and are they raising the right amount of money for what are they doing, and, and honed in on a lot of those skills to help companies, because the first last one hired and the first one hi fired in every financial company, not financial company, every high-tech company is a CFO. Hmm. And and not the smartest move in my opinion, but that's just right. that's just what it they is. They see it as expendable. They see it all the time. It's expendable. It's the last person they want until they get the money, and then there's and then are they managing right? And usually right. they they bring them in a little too late, and and then they have to fire somebody. And you don't want to fire your tech guys, your development guys, your sales team. Guy, your sales team. You're not going to fire them. So right. you fire the finance guy, take somebody outsourced or use your accountant, but it usually harms them. So I came in on a lot of those urgent cases and would help the companies get through those periods. Right. Raise the right amount of money and watch what they were doing with it. And so I would act as sort of the CFO. Right. Now, at some point, you transition, obviously, to the nonprofit world. Yes. Uh, as we're sitting here in the more offices. <laughs> so uh, when you say you certainly didn't, weren't in it for the money, I mean, I think that's the greatest demonstration of that. <laughs> to do something, Not that's a mark. profit and put non in front of it, you know. You know, you got so a profit. You added it for the money. So, so um, what happened at some point? Did you kind of just decide so, um, you wanted something totally but, different? Or? Yeah, so no, I, I wasn't looking for something totally different. I was uh, in about 2008, 2009, I actually met Tom Steinberg, mm. who was the former chairman of the board here. And um, we crossed over on an investment deal, and mm. we started talking about more and what it was. And um, and so he was sharing with me, and I said, "Wow, that's incredible what we're doing, which is which is educating, empowering, inspiring kids across U.S. college campuses about their Jewish identity, um, about their connection to Israel, about the, just connection to the Jewish people, and how they can elevate um, and gain more knowledge about our history." So I wanted to give that because during my college years is when I was searching so much and mm -hmm. found nobody and didn't have anything other than Hillel, thank God, so, you know, no knocks there, I'm just saying that that was all there was. Right. And um, there was no Chabad, there was nothing, there was nothing Jewishly except going to one of the synagogues in the nearby area. And I was ultimately asking lots of questions, trying to take classes, trying to find things to do, and I didn't have very much. And when, when he explained to me at that point in that one meeting what Moore was doing, I said, you got to get me involved. And I actually, he asked me to get involved, and I was like, you don't have to ask. As a volunteer, obviously. Just a volunteer. Yeah. So I began by just trying to 
um, learned more about the organization in that year and sent a few donors that I could think of, meaning being in the investment world. The problem with being in the investment world and trying to help more from that aspect was I wasn't really connected to a lot of Jewish investors. Israel uh, uh, was European. I didn't have any really Jewish investors. The European Some. investors were not mainly Jewish. But they were funds. They were right, not right. so, they were not Jewish. I started to develop more high net worth and high, other investors that were in the U.S. and so some of them definitely I could bring on board. But it wasn't like a, you know, a plethora of those kind. But what we worked it out, we tried to find out some more donors. And more and more I started to work on strategy and seeing that there was maybe need some more leadership. So I got involved more as a consultant to the organization so that I could really give dedicated time. And I had partners in my other business, so I had to be like, Straddling. I started to give more time to more than my business, and they weren't so happy. So I said, look, I'll dedicate one day, more I'll pay something small, and then it'll compensate a little bit for my desire to get dedicated. So I started to spend one day a week really working on more and trying to call people and get involved. And, um, and I did that for quite a number of years. I can't remember how many years. And uh, I think it's now four years ago. Um, could that be really? I feel like it's more than that, but okay. Well, no, four years ago that I came full time. Yeah, I feel, I feel like it's more than that. <laughs> no, no, so for, for six years before that, well, that it's ten, 10 years. Wow. It's 10 years in total. Um, but, but about three, four years ago, somewhere in that range, um, we were trying, Moore was trying to make a, sh- a pivotal shift to get some leadership. Uh, Tom and Rabbi Gershenfeld are the two leaders, and they were involved very heavily, and I was trying to take some burden off of them. So, uh, they asked me to join and I thought that was crazy and then I said you don't I'm a finance like what are you right. what are you gonna do with me um, but I went home and, and that my husband said that's all you talk about you don't talk about the finance business anymore all you talk about is more and I said you're right so I came back the next day and said I'm in just tell me what, what you want to do okay. so that's how it sort of more or less developed into me joining more full-time and um, dedicating and you know, I still try and have a toe in the investment business because it's very important to know what's going on in the investment mm. world, and that's how I know when people buy and sell companies. I know who to go to. I know who to go to. So I'm sorry, guys. They don't usually like when I walk in. I time my uh, I time my entries. What a coincidence! What a coincidence! I just had you have to be sitting on 50 million liquid. Let's go. Let's go. So it's a way that I can help and do something great for the Jewish people, and I think that we're changing the world of war. So I feel that we're making a huge impact across America and and just what's going on in intermarriage and everything else. We can see that we're more and more disconnected as a people. Right. And if we can bring some of that connectivity back, then uh, we're doing something great. We don't know where that one person, 10 people or 100 people will change the world. And if what's, the, what's the difference between raising funds for a nonprofit or for you know, a mission-oriented enterprise versus trying to raise capital in, in the investment world? Is it dramatically more difficult? Is it a similar kind of process or sort of sales funnel? Are the skills really translatable? Certainly, I guess the skills are translatable. In the investment world, no one cancels meetings on me. Ah. And in the nonprofit world, you always get meetings canceled. Uh (laughs) They know why you're coming. Right. Um, So, no, but I, I think, and I say this when I try and teach when I can, is that when you give someone an opportunity to do something great, in the investment world, I was giving people a great opportunity to make money, make money and to invest in Israel, which they wanted to do, but with the right people. Mm. And I was the conduit to say, basically to them, no, yeah, anytime my investors who did a lot of deals with me did not do a deal with me, um, let's say they just found something on their own, somebody came to their office and they ended up investing. I've gotten so many of those calls of like, why did I go in with Right, these? I wish I'd come with you. I, no, why did I go in with this group? I don't right. trust. I said, look, one of the things by being on the ground is that 
if you trust me, I will do the due diligence and make sure you're investing with the right people. You're their eyes and ears, yeah. And that they're doing what they say they were going to do. This was my strategy with funds. I said, if you come back for fund number two, I don't care if almost you made money or lost money. Did you do what you said you were going to do? Was your strategy what it was? Maybe the market shifted and you didn't, but now you can grab the markets moving and you're still going to stick to doing what you said you're going to do. I'd be more inclined to really take a good look at them to bring more investment. It's, it's the same way like that with everything that, that we do. So, I mean, I feel like I, I, um, I had a very strong skill set with that, with helping people think through what they want and why they want to do it. And when I shifted into the, into the nonprofit, the best thing I felt like I could do here was run a nonprofit like a business. Mm. You know, the more I can run a nonprofit like a business, which is obviously we don't have the profitability right. to run it like a business. Mine is the profit center. <laughs> but the professionalism, mm -hmm. the accountability, of believing in what we do. We say what we, you know, we do what we say we're doing. Right. We work hard, the team works hard, we believe in this, we're, you know. You still have nonprofit dollars to put to work well. Right. Somebody that's really, I'm talking, you know, obviously we've crossed the board, but if people really want to make an impact, and you can make an impact with, uh, we know in, in our crowdfunding, you can make an impact with $100, you can make an impact with $100,000, you can make an impact at any level. But you want to make an impact in good. The worst thing that my donors tell me is when they make a donation to a to an organization that goes under. How do you think that makes them feel? The same way it makes them feel when they make an investment in a company it goes under. They want good things running for them. So if you want your nonprofit dollars working, we're going to make sure. I wanted to make sure. The first thing I did when I came to this organization was make sure I had really good financial controls in place. Right. And. That's hard for you know for many nonprofits to to, to spend the money on their CFO and right, on the right. That's like a critical component to make sure we're running the way we say we're running. We're accounting for everything we say we're accounting for. We care about every dollar that comes into the organization. We care what we do, and our people care about our mission. And so, the the skills that I felt were so great for me to have a you know I enjoyed bringing into the organization was really to professionalize as best as I could. Um, together with obviously Thomas, very professional, and, and Rabbi Gershonfeld, and get that mission to a different level where we could really share that with the world and, and, and encourage them to, to give, donate, invest right. in, what, in what we're really about and see the dollars at work, right? When you can show them, when you can create documents, when you can let them understand metrics and systems and see what's happening and hear from the alumni and hear from the people that are being impacted from it, you're changing their life. In the investment world, they want to know that there's a good investment, there's an honest CEO, there's a great business happening, and they're doing the best that they can. When a company goes under two, while they're really upset about it, if those people did everything in their heart and soul to do what they could do and it didn't work, okay, they understand that. Right. But, if they, risk, but right? if they weren't honest and they weren't this, you're going to be forever angry at this position, you know, this would happen. But most often when people, people invest in people and yeah. people donate to people. You know, it's the same thing when you look at both angles. And when you invest in people and that person cares about that company, they're, they know that they're going to do everything and lose sleep forever to make that company success. And I think at Moore, we do the same thing with our organization. Everyone here loses sleep over this organization, cares about it from a different level, passionate about it. And I can see the parallels that have, I hope have helped me segue into the nonprofit. What, what about Moore makes you so passionate? What You spoke a little bit about it, but... You know what? If there's one or two things, elements uh, about of this organization, about and about the work that you know that you're really working so hard to support, what about it is so is so energizing to you? First of all, I think that the people that work in this organization are just exceptional. I agree. You know? <laughs> I know. You're there with me. 
I'm slightly biased now. You're slightly yeah. biased. I, I think the people really are um, exceptional and trying to, um, as we say, you know, in the Masirat Nefesh, I don't know how you translate yeah, it, but sacrifice, your, your self-sacrifice, sac- yeah. self-sacrifice that people put to, um, to educate and empower and inspire students every single day is so, and, and, and they're, you know, I just see where the world has been going, you know, and, and I'm saddened by so many things of the world, the direction that the world's been going, um, at least for the younger generation, and a lot of people lost, can't find direction, can't find meaning and purpose in life. We get this opportunity to live an incredible life and do great things, and you wanna just inspire them. You know, we happen to be born Jewish, so our organization is, no, you're Jewish, right? We're Jewish. So this is what we were born into, right? And at least, at the very least, we should, like I said, like I needed to understand Hebrew, we should understand who we are and what we're about. And people will make decisions anywhere on the spectrum that they want to get to in life, Jewishly. I, I, you know, I'm thrilled that we can give them that knowledge and that, um, and, and that stepping stone and get them on a ladder, get them climbing, getting them asking questions and exploring you know, their own personal growth. And so many students say to me that this is the most impactful thing they do in university. And they're taking classes and listening to speakers all over the world. And or they're gonna make a comment to me that the more is the most impactful thing I could cry. You know, I see that we're making an impact on people's lives. I see that we're changing, you know, people that we're getting them to think. It's like coming into the conversation. They're getting into the conversation. And I do this with finance too, right? People get in the conversation, they start thinking about it and thinking about personal mm-hmm. finance, they start thinking about it. Same Jewishly, you're getting into the conversation. And I think that if you lose that conversation, then you really, we lose a lot of people. And um, we're gonna, by nature, lose a lot of people. But if we can bring people back together, we can strengthen the Jewish people, which is not very large, given what people think we're a lot larger than we are. But the last thing we wanna see is it disappear. Yeah, I know one of your uh, passions, uh, outside of the work that you're doing, in general when it comes to finance, is educating uh, religious women in the areas of financial literacy. Uh, Can you you tell a little bit about what you're doing in that regard and why that's important? Yeah, so I started a number of years ago teaching a personal finance class. I did it just for my neighbors because I was getting so many questions that were so basic and I couldn't understand that they didn't have any financial knowledge, the women. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, I grew up not very observant, but my family, we talked about the stock market. Yeah. We had the, you know, the, the, the Wall Street Journal. Conversation. That was our Friday night conversation was the Wall Street Journal came out on Friday mornings. That's what we would talk about. Um, you know, but I was very passionate and my father's a CPA and, uh, you know, I was kind of in that world of finance my whole life. Although personal finance is something, you know, even as a child of an accountant and even being an accountant still takes knowledge to learn how to manage for yourself. Um, it's a different, a different it's skill. Yeah, yeah, different skill to pay attention to it. And I realized that most women didn't have that knowledge. So I tried this class out, which was called Understanding Money, which still is, and it's a four-part series. And I got passionate about teaching them the basics and also how to speak to your kids about money. Uh, and I got obsessed with listening to parents speak to their kids in the supermarket and on the street. And I started to take notes. And I just found this to be a fascinating topic that people are just... And they're, you know, like what they're saying is kind of crazy, and they're they're gonna just the next generation is gonna be the same illiterate. Right. Uh, what are some of the common like uh, errors or, or that you hear? <laughs> well, my favorite one is when you walk into the supermarket, and I don't know about America, but in Israel you could buy these like super duper magnums. They're like you know fifteen or twenty shekel for this big ice cream cone. Okay. And the mother will say, "That's expensive. Put that down." Right. And I'm like, you, you know, kids don't understand. Um, 
it's like hypocrisy, right? Like you're a hypocrite. When you say something's expensive, you have a house, you have a car, you have, we just went on vacation or we did something, whatever it is. What they meant and what they said are not the same thing. So when you tell a child that this is expensive, mm. um, you're not teaching them finance. What could you do with that kid? You could walk over to the, the thing that has six of those, maybe slightly smaller magnums that are 25 shekel for the box. This is an Israel word. Right, 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 25 right. shekel for the box. And, and show them that it doesn't make sense for us to buy one for you at 25. When we can buy for the whole family a box, they're slightly smaller. You don't need this much. You know, you need this much. Um, and you explain to them how money works, mm, right? The value. The value. Yeah. Also, like, kids are like, can I have, can I have, gimme, 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 gimme. Right. It happens to you all the I time. I have noticed yes. such a thing, yes. <laughs> and uh, the best thing you can do is actually give them a little bit of money and right. tell them to have a good time in the store. But then you can't also comment on what they buy. You can limit it and say, not the sweets, but if you want to, if, you, if you're going to let them go and what does that teach them? It teaches them to go in, it teaches them to go look at things and to figure it out and use their money and think of a budget and, you know, and, um, and, and by the way, it'll keep them busy for almost the entire time you're in a supermarket. <laughs> right. If they really have a mission, they have this money in their hand, they know that, and they get to use it. Right. right. With credit cards today, kids aren't touching money the way they were back then. We always right. only had money. We didn't have, we didn't use the credit cards like we use today. So the kids think the credit cards are endless. They don't really understand that, you know, you just tap a money, it's just take it out of that box, you know, right. why do, what, just get more. They, they don't contemplate. So you got to talk to kids early about money, let them touch and feel and use it. And as a parent, we should use more money. We shouldn't always, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a fan of always just putting it on the People lose track of everything with the credit right. cards. Um, and so we work a lot on those issues and, and we, first of all, you have to get through the basics of understanding how everything works and how to pay attention to it and bring it into the conversation. And um, it's like more of an easy, simple class where people can ask any questions and they don't feel stupid. I think when you get older, people just feel you're like supposed you know, to know already. Supposed yeah. to know already. You know, I'm thirties, forties, whatever you are. But I should know this. So I'm not going to ask. And there's a lot of conflict in marriage. And I realize. Yes. I would say after all my classes, I get definitely get calls from the husbands. What did you say? I've been talking to her for twenty years. What did you say? That she gets it now. She gets it. Right. She right. got. She got the basis. It's not hard to get the premise if you listen to someone for a little bit of time. I said I should do my podcast, son. You know, but you really can take a class like that and. Uh, it's meaningful for everybody because yeah. people don't really get how finance works. People don't understand how to leverage finance and use finance. One of the other things I teach is like someone boasts to me that they have no mortgage and they're, let's say, 35 or 40 right. and they're, they're working. And I said, well, that's stupid. Yeah, you could pay 3% or 5%, 4% and, and earn 7% in the market. Yeah, you, know? <laughs> you could attend the market. You could actually leverage other real estate or other property. You could do a lot of things with money if you understand right. what to do with it. And when it, it was the same thing in companies when I was an analyst in companies. If I saw a company come to me with no debt, I didn't invest in them. Interesting. I want you to have debt because debt, what does debt do for us? Good debt, right? right We're not going right, to talk right. about bad debt and high interest rate. Consumer debt, I am yeah. not tied just want to make sure for the record. <laughs> I'm not, I'm just talking about good debt. But on a company level or on a personal level, debt moves us, right? If we have debt, we work hard, we earn more. If we have nothing, we can sit back and if we have no debt, we're not, we're going to make here to, to just, you know, that's okay. Maybe that, maybe you're at that age, maybe you're 50s, 60s, 70s, you're ready for that. I mean, your 30s and 40s, but in companies, it's the same thing. Meaning those companies could be leveraging that. They could be buying another company that's strategic for them. They could be going out and, and enhancing their product line, or they could be using the money for good capital um, production for whatever they're producing. So when they say they have no debt, you wonder why they're not smart enough as an organization to grow the business enough. So those companies will grow much, much lower than companies that utilize it. 
in a better way. I don't want a high debt ratio. I'm just saying right. use it in a high way. So as an analyst, I used to look at companies this way, and then I said, hey, why aren't I looking at finance this way? And, and those are the kind of things we yeah. talk about in a much clearer fashion. And has this class kind of spread and become... So, you know, who has time? <laughs> How much time do I have? You know me. Not too much, yeah. Um, I try and do one or two classes a year. Mm -hmm. It's a four-part series, mm -hmm. so it takes, you know, four hours over the course of a month. You know, we do yeah. like four to, four to six hours. It usually takes like an hour and a half per class, so it's even more. Um, about six hours of time. So I'll do once in the spring, once in the fall, and I'll do in different communities. Hebrew, oh. English. So I've done in, um, in quite a quite a few of them, but I don't have. I wish I wish I could do more of them. Meaning there's there's demand. There really is a demand. I'll bet. I mean, the biggest demand is actually for. I've done a few classes for like 18 to 20 year olds, uh. and I've done some personal coaching to the young marrieds. That's usually the present I'll give. Which is a great gift. The two hours of financial consulting. I'll save them. Saving. Uh, Years of heartache and fighting. Many of them have stopped me on the street saying, I can't believe what I would have done if I didn't have this class. I wouldn't have known even yeah. what to talk to the banks about, how to understand things, how to ask for things, how to not, you know, what not, what to stay away from. I think if you don't get it early. I feel like it, I, I just heard a line recently. I was like, I don't remember who, who I, where I was reading, but you know, it's, it's kind of hard to save some people in the 50, you could, there's hope for everybody. I don't want to go get that hope. But like when you're already older, your habits get Entrenched, entrenched, yeah. And, yeah. And, and worse and worse. <laughs> or you can re repair some of that, but you don't have as much time. The very least we can do is the youth have a chance to right. not start in that angle and really. And also, they start to invest in a very conservative way. Can yeah. really compound. And so yeah, I teach a lot about compound interest and how much you need to put away. And my favorite analysis is basically if you were 20 and you put away $300 a month until you're 27. And never put away another dime and let the money work for you and it could compound at about eight percent annualized which if you were in the markets you for sure so you can average over average SMP over the course how much money do you think you'd have at 65 oh my goodness <laughs> i'm gonna let you answer that you've have invested twenty seven thousand dollars i tell this to my clients. you invested twenty seven thousand that's it you never invested in another dime another penny um, but you consistently invested the money every month right right this I'm, is a tony robbins you can i'm gonna go with uh, i'm gonna go with the two hundred thousand dollars you'd have 2.4 million dollars in the wow. bank at 65. Unbelievable. If it compounded only at eight percent, and you never put another diamond. That's unbelievable. And people don't understand this. And if they understood it at twenty, they'd be very, very interesting to try yeah. and get to that level. And then, because when you hit twenty-seven, all your you know kids are coming and right tuitions and everything. Tuitions start and things start and everything, and it's harder to save. Yes. But when you're twenty to twenty-seven, if you're working, it should be a lot easier to save if you really are. You don't have as high expectations of what you need and what you want. And right. Amazing if we would teach our kids that. Just that sense. It's a game changer. Compound yeah. interest. That's the name of the game. Just in closing, Debbie, what's okay. uh, what, what's the current state of women in the financial field in Israel? Have you seen a, a radical change? And, oh, and yeah. where do you, and where do you see kind of the whole thing going? And the and the Israeli startup culture in general. What are you seeing now? And where's all that going? So, um, you know, there was a it was a woman that started. Um, we have a group called Ima Kadima. If you look online, if you've interviewed those women or not, you should go. Uh, you're like not allowed to get into that group because you're not an Ima Kadima. Okay, I'll get my wife to sign it. Or you don't have to be a mom, you just have to be a, a woman. And it's grown, it's thousands. I mean, there are thousands of women in there. It's all a lot of, it's all working, you know, women and questions are all professional and people sharing professional stories or job opportunities. And I can see the growth in that alone. And I was shell shocked that how many people have jumped on just to that. But more women in the Knesset, more women in, in finance, more women, and definitely in the in women starting their own funds, women starting funds to with women investors. Uh, it's definitely growing. Is it where it could be? 
you know, I always say that for even myself, if I was more observant my whole life, I may not have got into this world because it's not really an easy world to be in in the finance space for women. Still, I'm saying in the man's world, it's just it is it is frustrating at times. Um, I guess you know God had a plan for me, and I got into this world. Um, and so I used to use my talents where I was given them and, and I'm grateful for it and I think it's very inspiring and I'm sure you're going to interview a lot of great women but there are definitely a lot of great women entrepreneurs out there now that yeah. I did not see 10 years ago meaning I'm not as entrenched in that raising money for high tech companies and things like I used to be but certainly I have a lot more friends that got motivated and inspired um, Temich has uh, you may have interviewed them at all Shandy. I haven't but I would love to Shandy Bell that she'd be really good. And uh, those conferences, we get a thousand women at them. It's a women only, women's business conference. A thousand women show up to that conference. Great. It's great. It's a Minyane Oma. It's a big, big deal. And just to watch, even in the more observant world, not just because in Tel Aviv, we have much more of it. Great women running Facebook. Well, there's a, you know, lots of different companies out there, the international companies where they have women at the head and lots of lots of women are involved in the business in, in Tel Aviv. But in Jerusalem, it was much slower to come by. And now we're watching Groups like that inspire women to do more things and better things. I think sometimes we don't think, you know, we're as qualified. Lots of things in the Knesset are going on for equal pay and right. different things, and that's always been a big, a big problem. You know, just in how women are compensated and they can do the same job. And it used to be that we would be discriminated because we were olim chadashim, new, new immigrants, and yeah. the new immigrants would be paid less because they want a job, they want to be right. here, so we can pay them less until they wake up. And after they wake up, they're doubled or tripled salaries. That's how much the salaries go up because they wake up. That's a lesson to the Elim Chadashim, but it's better now. It's like it's not like what it was. But sure. I think women really are making a huge impact, and I'm sure I'm excited to see what yeah, they're going to interview because a yeah. few of them are just really getting out there. And they inspire the other women, the younger women and the kids, like, you know, to do, to do great things and to make the change because they see some role models that we didn't see back right. then. We didn't have those role models when I was, I was dying for a woman role model when I was starting out here. Couldn't find one. Wow. Couldn't find anybody wow. to connect with, like that I didn't see anybody. It was right. all men, which were some nice men. Right. <laughs> Not what I was looking for. I was right. looking for how to manage four kids and a full-time job. Right, right. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've, uh, you, may, you may not have had those role models, but you've become one. Um, oh, and God. it's really an honor to, to be able to interview you, hear your story, of course, uh, of the amazing things we're doing together and more, but, um, but your, your larger story and how that impacts Israeli society more broadly. And uh, thank you very, very much for sharing that with us. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash jews you should know finally if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to jews you should know